as you're turning to Malachi chapter 2, um, I just want us to consider something here together. Uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the term oxymoron. No kids, that is not an accusation you can level against your brother or sister. An oxymoron is a figure of speech that combines contradictory words. A figure of speech that combines contradictory words. Let me give you some examples of oxymorons in the English language. Jumbo shrimp. Right? Working vacation. Controlled chaos. Freezer burn. I've never ever quite understood that one myself. And maybe my favorite, rolling stop. Okay? I know it's not a stop, you know it's not a stop, and some of you have realized that LPD knows it's not a stop either. <laughs> it's either rolling or it's a stop. This morning, as we continue in Malachi 2, we're going to get two examples that God gives Malachi in the people's lives that are examples of oxymorons as well. We're going to see two more oxymorons lived out in the lives of the people of Judah after returning from the Babylonian exile. This morning, we're going to see the oxymorons of faithless covenants and faithless marriages. Contradictory terms that are combined that don't make any sense. We're going to see what God has to say to his people in the book of Malachi. Look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and we're going to read this together this morning and see if you can pick out these two inconsistencies, these contradictions. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Let's ask the Lord's help as we dive into this text. Lord, as Dan said, we are so desperately in need of your help, in need of your presence. As we stand before another challenging text this morning, we recognize that, I recognize that I'm incapable of clearly explaining what your word says, and we are incapable of clearly hearing it without the power of your spirit. So Lord, move, work through me this morning, work in the hearts and minds of those that are sitting here today, Lord, conform our hearts and minds to what your word teaches, to who your son is, 
Lord, guide our time together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, for those of you that are new, uh, or those of you that have been with us through the study of Malachi, you know we're about halfway through the book of Malachi. This sermon series I've entitled, Worship Restored. So far, God has critiqued the Israelites on three fronts. He's critiqued their forgetful worship, saying, you've forgotten that I love you and that I chose you. Of all the peoples of the world, I chose you. Second, he critiques their worthless worship, how they were bringing blameless and lame and blind sacrifices, and he says, I deserve your best and your first in worship. And thirdly, last week he confronts their ignorant worship. He looks at the priests and he condemns them for not teaching the people what appropriate worship of God looks like. This week, he shifts from their corporate identity, their corporate worship, and he gets a bit more personal. He moves into their homes and their marriages. I'm calling this message faithless worship. Faithless worship. And there's a little bit more of a simple outline this week. I only have two points, which I guess is a contradiction in some way in and of itself, because a pastor can only have three points, right? Two points together for this morning. Number one, faithless covenants in verses 10 through 12. And then secondly, the oxymoron of faithless marriages in verses 13 through 16. Despite only having two points, I want to warn you that I'm not going to have time to cover this text exhaustively. There's a lot here. We're going to come back to some of these themes, Lord willing, later. Um, But Malachi begins in chapter 2, verse 10, by framing up the discussion right from the beginning. Look at verse 10. He lists four questions that kind of explain where he's going to go with the rest of his argument. He starts off by saying, have we not all one father? Have we not all one father? We've already talked about this in Malachi. Of course he believes that they have one father. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. He said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? His whole argument in chapter 1 was based upon the fact that he was the father of Israel. And the Israelites would have understood this. They would have said, yes, of course we all have one father, right? Then he says, has not one God created us? Again, the people of Israel had read the book of Genesis. They said, yes, one God has created us, right? They're following along with his logic. They're saying, not only did God create individually each and every one of us as people, he also formed this nation. He created us as the people of God, as Israel, when he called out Abraham and he called Isaac and he called Jacob and he brought us out of, the, out of Egypt into the promised land. Yes, of course, one God has created us. Taken together, these two questions indicate Israel's creation and sonship as God's people. And the people would have been tracking perfectly with where Malachi was going here. If you're interested in getting a taste of the way God refers to his people this way, read Isaiah 43 this afternoon. We don't have time to go there this morning. But the people would have been saying, yes, of course, we all have one father. We all were created by one God. Do you feel the trap about ready to snap closed on the people of Israel here? Third question. He notes the inconsistency in their faithfulness. Look at verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? He says, we all have one father, yes. We all have one creator, yes. Why then are we faithless to one another? At this moment, we have to take a bit of time and talk about what faithlessness is. Faithlessness is defined as not being reliable or true or true to allegiance. It's infidelity or if it's treachery, it's agreement breaking. It's deviating from doing what you say and say what you do. 
It's deviating from our commitments and our covenants and our promises and what we've said we're going to do. And here he says, why then are we faithless to one another? The implication for God's people here is God's people who are called by his name and made for his glory must be faith or must not be faithless to one another. He's saying it is inconsistent with my character. If you have one father, God, if you have one creator, God, it is inconsistent for you to live a life of being faithless in your relationships and your business dealings. He says, my people must be faithful to me in every aspect of life. We're going to explore that a little bit more here in just a moment. But then he asks another question. He goes on and he says, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? How would this behavior of being faithless to one another profane the covenant of their fathers? Well, profane means to make unholy or to rob something of its significance. And the point he's making is, this people who are claiming an identity with God are living in a way that profanes the relationship that they have with God. It's the same argument that John makes throughout the book of 1 John. Specifically, if you read 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, John makes this argument. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. If we claim the name of Christ and we claim to be a follower of Christ, then we must love and be faithful to each other. The point he's making is that faithless behavior towards brothers displays a cheap attitude towards God's grace and a misunderstanding of Christ's gospel. Don't miss this point. You all have one father? Yes. You all created by God? Yes. How can you be faithful to one another or faithless to one another and profane the covenant? How can you display a cheap attitude toward my grace and a misunderstanding of my gospel? It's almost as if, kind of similar to what he said otherwise, he's looking at the people and he's saying, you're wearing one uniform. You've put a badge on your uniform claiming identity with this team, claiming to walk and be a part of this team and own their values and follow after them, but the way you're living lives, the way you're treating your teammates is proving that's inconsistent. He's saying the heart of the matter is betrayed by the uniform you claim. You claim to be faithful to me, but you're treating each other poorly. So he's saying believers, people of God, must be faithful in all their dealings. They must be faithful in their business relationships. They must be faithful in their relationships at home. They must be faithful with their co-workers and their fellow students. They must be faithful with their siblings, even. He's setting a precedent here. He, he lays out this broad concept, and then he's going to flesh it out with two specific issues he has with the people. Malachi works through both, and we see our first oxymoron, faithless covenants. Look at verse 11. We first see the offense that the people are guilty of. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is precisely the same issue that Ezra was speaking to in Ezra chapter 9. He's saying, Judah has been faithless. And follow this progression of these four things he says about Judah here. He says, Judah has been faithless. He says, you, the people of God, having returned from the exile, my faithfulness to you are now not being reliable. You're not being loyal. 
you're not being true to each other. It gets worse than that. He says, abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Abomination, a word that's reserved for a serious offense. He's saying this action that you're taking is a serious problem. In fact, he goes on to say, the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves has been profaned. There's that profaned term again, made unholy, made unworthy, made unvaluable in your mind. Your worship is being demeaned and undermined by this activity. He said, well, tell us what it is already. He does. What is it that they were doing that was so bad? He says, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Has married the daughter of a foreign god. And you go, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Surely, who you marry isn't such a big deal to God, and that we would be wrong. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4 says this, he says to the people, you shall not intermarry with them, speaking of all the people in Canaan, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly, which is exactly what happened when the people were sent into exile the first time. But he says, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The point that he's making about who we marry is it's not about ethnic purity. It's about religious idolatry. He's looking at the people and he's saying, who you marry matters. Who you marry matters matters because those unbelievers are going to draw the hearts of the people away from worship of the true and living God. And the Israelites should have known this because this is what happened to Israel and Judah the first time. This is what happened to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And his heart was pulled away from worship of the true and living God by his foreign wives. It's not about ethnic purity. It's not about national identity. It's about religious idolatry. And this is the same principle that gets fleshed out by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God not saying we shouldn't have a relationship with unbelievers, but he's saying to marry unbelievers opens up the prospect of being pulled away from worship of the true and living God. The point here is Judah, their faithless behavior was sacrificing loyalty to God for relational convenience and pleasure. They sacrificed their loyalty, their covenant keeping to God for relational convenience and pleasure as they started marrying these idolatrous foreign women in the nation. Now let me ask for a moment here. Is this something we still struggle with today? Those of you that are youth, those of you that are kids, those of you that are single for whatever reason, don't worry, I'm going to talk to the married people here in just a moment. But for those of you that are still single, that are considering who you would date and who you would marry, let me tell you, God cares about these things. He offers a warning here in Malachi saying it matters who you date, it matters who you marry, because the temptation to pull you away from the worship of God is real. 
and I felt it when I was your age. The tendency to say, this person is really nice, this person is really great. Yeah, they don't love Christ, but maybe they'll come to a knowledge of Christ by dating them. Evangelistic dating is not a category that Scripture has. But it's a real temptation for those of us that are single, is it not? To say someday they'll love Jesus, hopefully. There's a warning here in Malachi that the heart of the unbeliever will want to draw away the heart of the believer from the worship of the true and living God. And he says, don't profane my covenant. Don't marry the daughter of a foreign God. And then we see this really severe sentence. Look at verse 12. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Because that needs to be removed so more people aren't drawn down that same path. And when they bring an offering to the Lord of hosts, what is he talking about again here? We keep bringing it up in the book of Malachi. He's talking about worship. He's talking about when the people assemble, when they bring their offerings to God. And he's saying, this is such an offense that that person should be separated from that. Is it that significant in your minds? Is it that significant in your dating relationships? The summary of what he's saying here is God's covenant faithfulness, what he's described in chapter 1, should inspire his people to be faithful to him. God should be first on the throne of your heart. There is no such thing as a faithless covenant to God. There is no such thing as faithless worship to God. There is no such thing as God plus. God plus the person I'm dating. God is either first in everything or he is not Lord of your life. They were putting their relational convenience and pleasure above their loyalty to the covenant of their God. And God says, this is a dangerous and wicked thing to do. But that's it for the singles. Now Malachi shifts his focus to a second relational topic, our second oxymoron, if you will, for the morning, faithless marriages. He introduces this in verse 13 by saying, and this second thing you do. This second thing you do, and he goes in another direction. Now, quick note here as we read 13 through 16. It's addressed exclusively to the husbands in these relationships. Because at the time, husbands were the only one that had the authority to divorce their wives. But lest all the wives and women in the room check out, God's standard here applies both to men and to women. God's ideal for marriage applies both to men and to women. Look at verse 13 and 14, and we see the people's complaint. Here they go. He says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So God's not listening. He's not accepting your offerings. This should sound familiar. We saw this in the second week of our study as well. And what we see is the people are weeping because God is rejecting their offering. They're sorrowful because God is disciplining them. Now, it's important to note here that their sorrow does not stem from a repentant grief over their sin. Their sorrow stems from the consequences of their actions. 
Not that we would ever be guilty of that, right? Kids, are you more upset about the consequence your parents give you or about the thing you've done wrong? Adults, are you more upset about the consequence your boss gives you than the thing you did wrong? Are we more upset about the consequence God puts in our life than the thing we did wrong? The people are sorrowful over the consequences, not repentant over their sin. And so they respond in their classic way in verse 14. Here it comes. But you say, why does he not? Israel's at it again, arguing with the Lord of the universe. Why does he not? They say, why does he not regard or accept our offerings? Why is he ignoring these things that we're giving to him? Right in the margin of your Bibles, 1 Peter 3, 7. Look it up this afternoon, where husbands are said that their prayers will be hindered for not living with their wives in an understanding way. God takes this stuff seriously. And then God explains why it's such a big deal. God explains his involvement in their marriages. He says, your marriages are not just about you. Let me describe the ways I'm involved in your marriages and why that results in me not listening and accepting your offerings. We're going to see three things here. First, verse 14. But why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. First thing we see about God's involvement in our marriages is that God is the witness to our marriage covenants. God is the witness to our marriage covenants. A witness is one that stands beside and testifies to what they've seen. This makes sense to us in Nebraska. A lot of states don't require witnesses when they do a marriage, but in Nebraska, we still require two signatures from two witnesses that stood there and say, I saw the people take the vows, I saw the service, these people are married, and they have to sign on the marriage certificate. But there's a few implications of the fact that God is the witness to our marriage covenants. Think about it. A witness sees what takes place. God is a witness to your relationships and your marriages. God sees what takes place in your relationship before you get married. God sees the ceremony and what's taking place in your marriage today. And God sees what you choose to do with that covenant going forward. God hears It's almost as if he's standing there beside you as the groom, standing there beside you as the bride as you take your vows, listening to the commitment you're making, not only to your spouse, but before God. Right? The beginning of weddings, we say, in the presence of God and all these witnesses, because God is witness. He sees and he hears the commitment we make in our marriages. And assuming it's a biblical marriage, God affirms it. He says, this is good. I created this. I'm testifying to the goodness of this gift. So God is a witness to the wife of your youth. He says, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He says, by putting her aside, by rejecting her and divorcing her, you are being faithless to your companion and your wife by covenant. And I'm a witness to that covenant that you have made. The principle at play here is, Marriage unfaithfulness betrays what God has testified to in our marriages. 
Now bear with me, we're going to speak to some specific examples here in a moment, so hang on. But the principle in Malachi is our marriage unfaithfulness betrays what God has testified to in our marriages. It's really important to keep in mind. Now, fair warning, before we move into the second and third, verses 15 and 16 are possibly the trickiest to translate in the entire book of Malachi. So some of your translations are going to have slightly different things here, but I'm reading from the ESV, so I'm going to read it from that. He goes on in verse 15, he says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Second principle about our marriages that God says is his design. God is the creator of our marriage unions. God says, I am the creator of your marriage unions. God created this union, not man. God created this union, not us as individuals. God created this union of marriage, not the government, not the church, not anyone else. God says, I am the one that creates this union. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, Christ affirms this exact same position when addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to him, and in verses 3 through 6, he says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It's the same argument that Malachi is making in chapter 2. God is the creator of our marriage unions. And I think there's at least three implications worth noting from God as the unifier of our marriages. The first, and basically, or maybe most straightforward, is that marriage is monogamous. I'm not going to go into explicit detail here, but the reality is marriage is intended to be monogamous because there is one union created between the man and the wife when they get married. That is God's design. So the world will tell you all sorts of other things about open marriages and about polyamorous relationships and about all sorts of other things. But God says, I am the creator of your marriage union. Marriage is monogamous. Secondly, marriage is spiritual. Again, the world would tell us that your marriage has little more to do with than your, just your physical union, your relationship, or your emotions, or even like the combining of your property and your assets. But God says, I'm the one that has done this. I have created this union. There is something here that is greater than when the two of you were on your own. Which leads naturally into the last one. Marriage is lasting. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment of faithfulness between a man and a woman. Because God has created the union, not us. God gets to define the terms, not us. And the point is that marriage unfaithfulness betrays what God has unified in our marriages. That idea of profaning the covenant, it casts mud on the picture that God is trying to paint through our marriages, which speaks to the third way that God is involved in our marriages. Look at 15 again. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God says, I am the purpose for your marriage relationships. I am the purpose for your marriage relationships. What was God seeking? Godly offspring. Okay, and, and 
let's explain this a little bit, okay? Obviously, God's command in Genesis to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. But that does not mean that every marriage relationship or every person must have children, okay? Don't go that far, though that is probably the norm, right? The point here is that God was seeking more worshipers, more disciples, more people following after him. God's purpose for marriage is the increase of his glory through the multiplication of his worshipers. God has a divine purpose for each and every one of our marriages. It is to glorify himself through seeing more people come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And that definitely includes more children, but it also has more expansive definition than that. And then at this point, at the end of verse 15, we see a couple of positives and a negative. First, two positives. He says, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Stick a pin in that, because that's the exact same ter- terminology that gets used at the end of verse 16. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But in 16, at the beginning of 16, he addresses the negative. He says this, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is the textually difficult passage. Some of your translations will say, for God hates divorce. Myself or Pastor Mike would be happy to have conversations with you after the service about this idea. And there's some interesting textual things going on. But the point either way, however it gets translated, is that the people's lack of love and faithfulness for each other is leading them to abandon each other for no reason at all, and that is doing violence to each other. That's the point he's making. The terminology here of unfaithfulness is appropriately applied broadly to situations more than just divorce, to situations of adultery and situations of abuse and situations of physical desertion. And so what Malachi is not saying in this situation is regardless of what's going on in your marriage, you have to physically stay in that and take it. We're going to address more of that, Lord willing, in October when we study 1 Corinthians together. But the point he's making here is that marriage is chiefly about God's glory and grace. Our marriages are chiefly about God's glory and grace. When we are faithless in our marriages and make them chiefly about us, we deny God's role as a witness to our marriages. We deny God's role as the creator of our marriage unions, and we deny God's purpose for our marriages. It's a big deal. Now, I said I was going to take a moment here, and I want to address some of the audiences, because there's some pastoral care that needs to be involved in a discussion like this. Because to hold up God's ideal of marriage is important. And yet, we are all in different situations when it comes to our experience in this regard, are we not? To those of us that are already divorced, some of us were the offender, the faithless one in the relationship. Some of us were the one that was faithless or that someone was faithless to. Okay, that's a reality in the world we live in. But the point of holding up a biblical model for what marriage is and what it's intended to show in the world is not to put a A and a red letter on people that have been divorced. Any more than it is to specify every one of the rest of us who have been faithless in some relationship. And so I would say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
whether you are the one that has been faithless or whether you are the one that has had someone be faithless to you, embrace repentance and grace in that situation. Embrace repentance and grace. Don't fail to call a spade a spade. Faithlessness is faithlessness. But Christ has died for our faithlessness. And that means forgiving others, and that means moving forward and being faithful in whatever circumstance you find yourself in today. Secondly, for those of us that are sitting here today that are in marriages that are potentially considering divorce, I want you to be very careful. Carefully consider why it is you are pursuing that. Is it about personal, relational convenience and pleasure? Or is it about God's glory in your marriage? Again, Mike and I would be happy to have conversations with any of you after the service about that, but carefully consider what's going on in your own heart. For those of you that are currently married, the the exhortation is fairly straightforward. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Faithful emotionally, faithful physically, faithful relationally. In all ways, stay faithful in your marriage to the other person. And then lastly, for everyone else, lest you think that this is something you can check out on. The reality of marriage, as Ephesians 5 puts it, is marriage is intended to paint a picture of Christ's love for his church. God has woven this incredible reality into the fabric of creation, saying that your marriages are to anticipate Christ's love for his bride, the church. And he has given us this example to set up this incredible reality of how Christ loves his bride, the church. And that is a reality that supersedes even the physical marriages that are in this room. It is the greater reality, it is the picture that God is painting, and it is something that every believer in Christ can participate in. So whether you are single or whether you are married, this reality of Christ's love for his church is the bigger picture that Christ is painting through his word. Marriages are meant to refer to that reality, something that every one of us can participate in by following Christ. You are not left out as a single in the church. You are not just waiting to arrive once you get married. That's not the way it works. Now lastly, he summarizes all of this at the end of verse 16. He says, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He says, Guard yourselves in your spirit. Put your defenses up to protect yourself from what this world has to throw at you. And I would add that I think the implication of this is monitor the voices that you allow to speak into these realities in your life. Asking the world's advice on spiritual matters, on living in faithful relationships, business relationships, or personal relationships, asking the world's advice on the purpose of marriage is like going to your mechanic to ask about your acid reflux. The truth is, he may have an opinion. Probably does. But it's not something he's qualified to speak into with any authority. Going to anyone other than the author of creation through his revealed word to address questions of faithfulness in this life is an exercise in futility. 
But we have a tendency to take our lead on faithful relationships in business and in home and in marriage and in other relationships from the world rather than from God's Word. It says, this is what I have told you faithfulness looks like. And then this pretty much stands for itself. And do not be faithless. This is one of those prime examples of a command that's really easy to understand and really hard to do. All of us are guilty of different ways of being faithless in our relationships or faithless in our marriages. But God says it this way. He says, God's covenant faithfulness should inspire his people to be faithful to each other, particularly in their marriages. Not exclusively, but particularly in their marriages. If God has been faithful to us, we need to be faithful to each other. Which brings us to our key point for this morning's message. Kids, key point for this week's message is that acceptable worship includes faithful obedience in all areas of life and relationships. All areas of life and relationship. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in the book of Ephesians. Rome, or excuse me, Romans. In Romans chapter 12, after expositing the truths of the gospel and doctrine for 11 chapters, Paul makes a very succinct statement and then transitions into the way we ought to live. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It says this life of faithfulness and obedience to God is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's really easy to come in on a Sunday morning and say, I worship God because I sang some songs. It's really hard to go out and Monday through Saturday be faithful to your wife or your husband. It's really easy to come in on a Sunday morning and worship God through our prayer and our study of God's Word. It's really hard to go out and Monday through Friday be faithful in all your business dealings. But in Romans 12, Paul says, this is your spiritual worship, faithfulness and obedience to God. Whether it's faithful covenants, being faithfully allegiant to God as your sovereign and creator, or whether it's faithful marriages and relationships with each other, this is our spiritual worship that we offer to God in appreciation for the gospel and the grace he's shown us. And so I think there's at least three things that we need to remind ourselves of from this text in Malachi chapter 2. The first is that worship is an expression of our unity in Christ. He starts off by saying, have we not all one Father? Have we not all one Creator? Has not one God called us together? That's exactly the same point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says worship is an expression of the unity that we have in Christ. When we live faithfully with one another, we are expressing the unity that we have been given through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Second, worship is a demonstration of our loyalty to God. When we live faithfully, obedient lives in all of our relational dealings with other people, we are demonstrating a loyalty and an allegiance to God first and foremost. 
And the point he makes to the people in Malachi is when they are living faithlessly, they are profaning the relationship that they have with God. Worship is a demonstration of our loyalty to God. Lastly, worship is displayed in our faithfulness to each other. We display how much we think of God when we choose to be faithful to each other. Specifically, in our marriages. When it's hard, when it's difficult, when we don't feel like it, it's an act of worship to God to be faithful to each other. Every day, every one of us has to fight the temptation to live as an oxymoron ourselves. There is no such thing as a faithless Christian. We all fail, we all fall, and we all run to the grace of the gospel again and again and again. But the standard God sets up for his people is faithfulness in every dealing in life. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that this is easy to say and really hard to do. So I do pray that your word by the power of your spirit would sink deeply into our hearts and minds. Lord, if there are any inconsistencies in the way we've lived or the way we've been thinking in the past, that you would help shape and mold that and conform it to the image of your son. Lord, give us the courage to be faithful even when it's hard to each other, to our marriages, to our coworkers, to our bosses. We as your people ought to be defined by our faithfulness to each other and to you. Make us into that people by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.